how do we know what the early solar system was like? How does life come from a lifeless beginning? Bennu is a fragment of the ancient solar system. We can learn the, the types of ingredients that were available on the early Earth that could have gone into life and maybe understand more about ourselves by looking at Bennu. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Jason Dworkin, and he is the project scientist for OSIRIS-REx and a research scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Jason's realm of research is the chemistry of early solar system and the early Earth. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, how do we know what the early solar system was like and what it had to start with? The early solar system is a period in time that's a long, long time ago and is therefore very difficult to understand. We understand the early solar system from looking at spacecraft and ground-based observations with telescopes of, of our solar system, of other star-forming regions. We also use our understanding of geology of the Earth and of other planets to uh, extrapolate what the early Earth would have been like. But there must have been a spark. Something must have happened that changed the chemistry into life as we know it. What do we know about that period and what would have happened? The, the, the so-called spark of the origin of life is a massive question, which has been pursued for decades, if not centuries. Understanding how life formed and then subsequently evolved into life as we know it, we can use evidence based on how biology works across organisms today, looking at uh, metabolic and genomic factors to understand what, what life has in common. We can look at the geology of ancient rocks and earth to look back and understand what kind of conditions would have been present. We can look at uh, the formation of the solar system by a number of different means to understand what kind of conditions would have been present. My favorite method of understanding uh, what materials would have been present on the early earth or early Mars, what have you, is by looking at the rocks that were present at that same time in the form of meteorites, asteroids, and comets, looking at, at the same materials that had the same chemistry, the same exposure. So those things formed in space and became Earth, became terrestrial planets, and even bombarded Earth after it came together. Well, where do these meteorites come from? The meteorites we get on the Earth come from a variety of places. Some came from the Moon. Some came from Mars. Some came from asteroid Vesta. The other ones, we don't really know. We can look at the uh, chemistry and the mineralogy of these rocks and make guesses. They come from different kinds of asteroids, uh, maybe even comets. Uh, there are some that are solid chunks of metal that look like they came from the core of an asteroid. Like, like for example, uh, the mission Psyche will be going to an iron a nickel core of an of a ancient body. Uh, but knowing where a meteorite came from is uh, a current mystery. So how do we collect these meteorites? Where do we go to get them? If they're falling on Earth all the time, how do we differentiate a rock that's been here on Earth for billions of years and a meteorite that just fell? Meteorites fall all the time, everywhere, every day, 
mostly most of the, of the mass comes in the forms of, of dust. Interplanetary dust particles are picked up. For example, uh, high-flying airplanes can collect some of these, and NASA has a great mission campaign collecting stratospheric dust from, from space. NASA and NSF have a joint program that goes to Antarctica every year, as does uh, Japan, to pick up uh, meteorites, which are on the ice. That's a fantastic place to get meteorites because, well, for one thing, meteorites tend to be black and ice tends to be blue-white, so that makes it easier. Uh, but also, um, the trans-Antarctic mountains bisect Antarctica, and uh, meteorites are carried by ice flows up against these mountains. The ice elevates away, leaving a higher concentration of meteorites. Other places, like uh, deserts, are a good place to find meteorites. And there are a couple cases, uh, two in fact, where an asteroid has been seen in space and then fallen to the ground and been picked up. And it was actually the fireball was imaged as the meteorite was turning from an asteroid into a meteorite. Yeah, in fact, you know, we have whole teams within NASA that uh, uh, once we alert them that there's uh, something coming in, uh, they get ready to go out and, and find, pick up the pieces and bring them into the lab. So it's a really fascinating uh, opportunity for us to determine how early things in the solar system uh, came together. Well, what don't meteorites tell us? Uh, meteorites invariably land on the ground. And when they do so, they become contaminated with biology, which is present everywhere. Earth biology. Earth yeah. biology, mm -hmm. yes. And understanding the contribution of earth biology that overprints the organic compounds and other materials uh, from extraterrestrial sources is a massive problem. Furthermore, uh, with a very few exceptions, we don't know where meteorites came from. Is this piece of rock from a, a comet, from the main belt, uh, all kinds of things we don't know about uh, just by looking at a rock that's been uh, separated from its parents. Well, so there's one way to get around that, of course, and that is develop a mission and go out and meet them. Now, you're a project scientist on a really exciting mission to an asteroid, and it's there right now. It's called OSIRIS-REx. Tell us a little bit more about this fabulous mission. OSIRIS-REx is uh, an acronym that stands for the purpose of the mission, Origins, Spectral Interpretation, Resource Identification, uh, Security, Regolith Explorer. At Asteroid Bennu, it's orbiting it today, uh, to pick up uh, a sample of rock from the surface, uh, a large sample as these things go. Uh, 60 grams is the minimum, and the capacity is 2 kilograms, which is a massive amount of sample for scientists to study. So how long does it take OSIRIS-REx to get to Bennu? It's got to run it down in the solar system. Uh, so OSIRIS-REx launched September 8th, 2016, the 50th anniversary of the first episode of Star Trek. Uh, flew out around for a, a year, did an Earth gravity assist, nice name, uh, to change planes of the, of the orbit to an inclination of six degrees. Then the following year, it finally caught up with Bennu. And it's been orbiting it ever since. The spacecraft has been has had two world records, one for the closest uh, orbit, which we then broke with an even closer orbit, and consequently a very slow orbit, and also the smallest object ever orbited. Wow. We'll collect the sample, bring it back to Earth in 2023 uh, for uh, worldwide analysis. So what do you think Bennu will tell us about life here on Earth? Bennu is a fragment of the ancient solar system. 
by studying this fragment that has not been contaminated by landing uh, on ice and uh, dirt on Earth, been handled with an exquisite chain of evidence, we can learn the, the types of ingredients that were available on the early Earth that could have gone into life um, and maybe understand more about ourselves by looking at Bennu. Yeah, so this... This Bennu, it's as black as coal. I mean, the images that, that, that are coming back from OSIRIS-REx are really exciting. Yeah, what can we tell about its shape? How did it get the way it looks? Bennu is, is a rubble pile about half a kilometer across. Uh, it's a collection of, of loose rocks that um, came from some sort of catastrophic uh, breakup of its original parent body in the asteroid belt. Uh, these relaxed to this spinning top shape. Uh, this was actually observed uh, on the ground uh, through radar images, largely from uh, Arecibo and Goldstone, that gave us a really accurate shape model of the asteroid so we knew what we were going after. Uh, it gave us um, uh, the spin rotation, orientation, the length of day, all these sorts of great things. So now you've been at Bennu for a while, you've studied it in great detail, and you've picked several sites to consider and now you've decided on a particular place on the surface to go after. How did that process go? One of the things that surprised us about Bennu was how rocky and bouldery it, it, it is. In our initial model, we figured there'd be these large sandy beaches that would make sampling the surface very, very simple. The spacecraft has a three meter long pogo stick with a, like a gold car air filter on the end, not literally an old car air filter. Uh, a highly designed um, uh, a piece of machinery that uh, collects sample material by blowing nitrogen gas and collecting it. Sort of and, like a vacuum cleaner. In, in, indeed. Uh, the initial name of it was MUCAV, which is vacuum sort backwards uh, because it, it, <laughs> okay. it blows nitrogen gas in, in the vacuum of space yeah. and collect, picks up dust. So we predicted uh, large swaths of, of sand, essentially, that we could pick up. Well, it turns out that there are big chunks of rocks, making navigation much more complicated than we had anticipated. Fortunately, we have an impeccably well-designed spacecraft and a, and a, a top-notch navigation team. So we were able to adjust our, our strategy uh, to find four potential sampleable locations and we could get um, material from to bring back to Earth. Uh, we went through an extensive process of figuring out which one is the ones we can get to on the spacecraft safely. We can make sure we can navigate to precisely uh, that have loose regolith and that are also the most exciting for science. And of those, we found our number one and our number two site, which we've named Nightingale and the backup is Osprey which are names of birds uh, that live in Egypt. Bennu is the name of the asteroid, which is named after an Egyptian bird god. So Bennu is really fascinating. Now it spins. Uh, what is the spin rate? A day on Bennu is 4.3 hours. Wow. And you're going to come to this in a way that then allows you to sit down on it and suck up some material. That sounds really challenging. Yes and no. So it is, in principle, challenging, but we worked for many, many years on developing the technology to make sure that we can do it safely. Uh, we only need to touch the surface of Bennu for five seconds. So the spacecraft does a free fall uh, from uh, a low Bennu orbit. It takes about 20 minutes because Bennu is such a small object. Um, 
we touch the surface and then bounce off at minuscule speeds, sna a literal snail's pace, uh, blow the nitrogen gas to collect the, the, the rocks and dust, and then fire our thrusters and get out. Yeah, that process is called uh, touch and go. So one of the surprises then is you didn't see dust fields that you were hoping for, and now you see a more of a pebbly field. What are some of the other surprises? I'd say the most surprising thing that we discovered is that Bennu is ejecting rocks. We had wondered, well, could Bennu be an extinct comet? And so we had a campaign looking for dust plumes. We didn't see any. But then we saw these surprising uh, couple centimeter rocks being spat yeah, like off. popcorn, just popping off the surface. Right. Uh, and we see this popcorn continuously, not every day, but many days. And we've seen particles that um, are ejected and leave Bennu, some that go into orbit and some that crash back down. The orbits are stable for, for days. So what do they think is causing that, the popping going on? Is it the heating of the water that's in the rocks that, that then uh, some sort of reaction explodes? That's one model, but it's not totally supported by the data. Another model, uh, which is right now, well, there are two favored ones right now. One is thermal cracking of rocks. Uh, that then uh, release energy and spit off rocks. Another one is uh, this area of the solar system has very fast-moving particles, like bullets, could hit the surface, and then the gravity in Bennu is so small on the order of uh, 3 to 5 micro-G, which is similar to uh, uh, the sort of gravity experience on the International Space Station. Very, very low gravity, and so a small energy can actually kick off a lot of rocks very far. The Earth should have been showered with, um, <laughs> with meteorites um, uh, like Bennu and like other types of, of, of asteroids and comets. Actually, uh, since we've discovered that Bennu is, is emitting particles right now uh, and crosses the Earth, there is almost certainly somewhere uh, in September in the Southern Hemisphere, there should probably be a very small Bennu meteor shower. Uh, we have teams trying to oh, understand yeah. to look for that. Yeah, It won't be very big, but it's Earth-crossing asteroid that is emitting particles, so they're probably already hitting the Earth now. Got it. Interesting. We just don't know what they look like. You know, the Japanese Hayabusa 2 mission is at a similar asteroid called Rugu. How, are they seeing any of the same phenomena? Ryugu seems to be, um, it's about double the size, uh, similar shape, but much, much drier. They don't see, uh, they see a very low level of, of hydrated minerals and not ubiquitous like we see on Bennu. Hayabusa 2 collected two samples and is on the way back to Earth right now. Uh, they collected, um, we won't know until the sample comes back, but perhaps as much as a couple hundred milligrams, maybe a gram if they're lucky, we don't know. Uh, and we'll, when the OSARS-REx sample comes back, we'll be able to do a face-to-face -face comparison to understand how these two different asteroids compare. Now, we have an arrangement with the Japanese Space Agency where we're going to actually trade samples. So this is really an important international cooperation to understand this asteroid population. So isn't the thinking that it's old, like the origin of our solar system, it was there and pelted the Earth right after the Earth formed and then brought material to the Earth that's so important that perhaps started life? Yes, that's my, my interest in it, is to understand uh, the chemistry that went into life 
the, the chemistry of the early solar system by looking at these ancient objects, four and a half billion year old objects that have been relatively unchanged since their accretion uh, and see what they delivered to the early Earth and what they're delivering now. Well, when the samples come back, what kind of systems do you have in your laboratory? What kind of instruments are there to really be able to tease apart and answer the questions you want to know about them? My favorite part of OSIRIS-REx, and of, in fact, sample return missions in general, uh, just like the Apollo missions, we'll be able to use the best instruments around the world and better still instruments that have not yet been invented. So uh, 25% of the sample is being uh, analyzed by the science team when it comes back. Um, a half percent goes to Japan in exchange for Hayabusa 2 sample and also discussion of uh, orbital maneuvers and operations around the small bodies. 4% goes to Canadian Space Agency, but then the rest of it goes into an archive, uh, mostly at the Johnson Space Center, to be available for people around the world with good ideas to propose for decades. The ANCSA program, which uh, is now opening up uh, samples from 50 years ago from Apollo, being analyzed with modern techniques, will be able to do similar things with um, people who are not yet born answering questions that we haven't thought of using techniques that are uh, not invented can interrogate these samples. So one of the things that you want to do then is, once you get the sample in the laboratory, is, is understand what you have. What is the composition? So what do you expect to find? My interest is in things like uh, amino acids and their chirality, their left and right-handedness, which has been observed in meteorites to be asymmetric, to have a, a bias of left-handed just like life. Uh, looking for sugars, nucleobases, or D, that is the DNA bases, uh, lipid-like compounds, organic acids, all kinds of, of the same sort of chemistry that we see in biology, but in a sample that has been left alone by terrestrial biology, been tightly controlled with a solid chain of evidence from construction to sample recovery to analysis. Yeah, that sounds really fantastic to be able to tease that apart and, and look at the details of uh, the composition. Also, as you mentioned, these are hydrated samples, so that means they're, they're carrying water. And to understand the, the amount of water that they carry uh, is important to know. So we're really looking forward to these samples returning. So what's the schedule? When will they get back to Earth? The first thing we have to do is finish surveying uh, the prime and backup sampling site. That happens this spring. And then we, we do rehearsals to make sure that we can fly the spacecraft to just above the sampling sites. And then we actually do the sampling, and that happens this year. Um, after sampling, we have to wait for a departure window because just like as there's a launch window, there's also a departure window when the planets align so we can bring uh, the spacecraft back. The spacecraft comes back uh, to Utah uh, September 24th, 2023. It's a Sunday, uh, just in the morning, just before 9 a.m. Uh, after that, the sample comes to, uh, to Houston for the preliminary examination period of six months, followed by a worldwide distribution. And indeed, that will, that will spark a whole new series of questions uh, after we get some of the fundamental answers we're seeking. Well, do you think we are alone in the galaxy? I would love uh, not to be alone. Uh, I have... Um, Opinions based on the ubiquity of, of organic compounds, uh, that it seems like life might be easy or easier than had been believed. 
but it still has been a challenge to come up with the exact mechanism of the origin of life in the laboratory. I would love to to find um, non uh, non Earth life in my lifetime. Right now, we don't understand life that isn't Earth life. Seeing it somewhere else, seeing it on Mars, Enceladus, Europa, uh, where have you, would be um, the discovery of a millennia. Well, it sounds like you're in favor of the concept that we'll find life in the solar system first before we find it on some exoplanet. Well, finding an exoplanet would be um, would be challenging to verify. <laughs> right, um, they're so far away. And so we could look for something that is obvious life. Obviously, you could look for technology. But um, I want to understand the chemistry. And so we don't have a telescope good enough to tell us what the codons are in, uh, in extraterrestrial biology without getting into a laboratory. Yeah, that's right. So bringing back the samples is where it is at. Well, Jason, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or person, place, or thing that really got them so excited that they became the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So, Jason, what was your gravity assist? My gravity assist was actually a chain of events, starting when I was very young, and I was I thought dinosaurs were awesome. Um, and I've, but... I wanted to know, okay, where did dinosaurs come from? That meant I had to learn about the origin of life. So I had a, a, a little book for um, uh, elementary school kids on dinosaurs and life, things of that sort. Um, and then that evolved into understanding about the solar system. Then I saw a PBS show on the origin of life and got excited about that in high school. Uh, but I liked chemistry. I did a science fair project in 10th grade which is biology. And I didn't really like biology. I wanted to do chemistry. I thought to myself, what part of biology is really chemistry? Oh, I'll do my science fair projects on the original life. That hooked me up with a... Um, <laughs> science fair. Wow. Exactly. Uh, that hooked me up doing a, a research uh, internship at the University of Houston that turned into a, another uh, project that turned into a paper that sent me to college and then um, graduate school. And then I got a postdoc uh, at NASA, uh, where I could then turn my interest in the origin of life uh, from understanding what happens on the ancient Earth to constraining the, the lack of information by looking at the stars and studying more and more constraints from uh, looking at the chemistry of the interstellar medium to then the chemistry of meteorites, even more constrained than finally the chemistry of a sample from a specific object. So that is all real important and fundamental science, and you were right there at the right time to be able to use the tools and the capabilities. So that's a, that's a fantastic story. Well, Jason, I really appreciated talking to you today about meteorites and, that, and their connection to life, in particular here on Earth. So thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist. Since we recorded this episode of Gravity Assist, OSIRIS-REx has finished surveying the mission's primary and backup sampling sites. And it has completed its first rehearsal of the sample collection event. The mission will run 
one more rehearsal before it makes its first sample collection attempt later this year. Good luck, Osiris Rex.